from Melbourne, Peter Credlin. Good evening and welcome to the show. It's Friday night. It's been a big day of politics. Let's look at what's coming up on the show tonight. Feedback Friday, as always. Today we're going to talk about your views on nuclear power and nuclear submarines and a whole lot more with Luke Grant from Radio 2GB. A Melbourne academic, we'll talk to her. She started a website calling on women to share their stories on her page, describing their use of these women-only spaces. But because of that, she's been savaged and accused of being transphobic. She joins me a little later. And New South Wales Police have confirmed today the remains of missing businesswoman Melissa Caddick have been found three months after she disappeared. Tonight, I'll speak with a journalist who broke the story behind Caddick. It was decomposed in a way, so obviously it had been in the water for some time, but um, luckily the scientists were able to extract DNA from that foot and match it to a sample of DNA that we had already obtained from uh, a toothbrush belonging to Melissa and also from her relatives. At this point, we can't rule out anything. We've kept a, an open mind all the way along. However, given the circumstances of her disappearance, the fact that she left personal belongings behind, um, we've always considered the possibility that she may have taken her own life, but that's a matter for the coroner. But first, the poll this week suggesting that the Liberal Party could be reduced to just two seats in the West Australian Parliament doesn't just show how the pandemic is helping incumbents, it also shows that you don't win elections by agreeing with your opponents. Look, it was always going to be a huge gamble to entrust the leadership of the opposition to a 34-year-old rookie with no great record of personal achievement, a bloke who's barely been in the parliament for five minutes and, while nice enough, I don't reckon he gets what the Liberal Party stands for. Not only did Zach Kirkup... 100% back Premier Mark McGowan's quasi-separatist hard-border closures, we then left his state and federal colleagues gobsmacked by proposing net-zero emissions, not by 2050, but 2030. To prove his seriousness, Kirkup promised to close WA's only coal-fired power station by 2025. So that's in under five years' time. Claiming that somehow the renewables were going to deliver cheap, reliable power and jobs in the West, even though they've done precisely the opposite everywhere else. But instead of galvanising his campaign predictably, of course, this policy own goal just demoralised his supporters. Yesterday, he plunged them further into despair by declaring that the Libs could not win and begging people, begging them to vote Liberal to prevent a Labor landslide. This is what you get, isn't it, when you get a teenager to do an adult's job. It's what you get when the Liberal Party tries to be the Labor Party rather than itself. And that's to say a, a party of the family, small business, empowered citizens and economic development. Repeated experience shows you don't win elections by mimicking the other side. You win elections by creating a contest by showing voters how things would be different and better under you, thanks to a few key, clear policies that build on your party's values rather than rub up against them. Vague talk. Vague talk about ending waste and extravagance won't do it. Claims that you'll be a better manager, but you won't. That won't work. Voters have heard that all before and have been let down too often. And becoming labour light, or in this case becoming more Labor than Labor on the grounds that you win votes from Labor while traditional Liberal votes supposedly have nowhere else to go, well, that just boosts minor parties, encourages informal votes and desertion by volunteers and Liberal donors. To show just how wrong that line is, that the Liberal voters have nowhere else to go, I'm sure you've heard that before, let's have a look at 2016, that federal election. Malcolm Turnbull used that line. Well, Malcolm Turnbull barely hung on after losing 14 seats. To win elections, you have to show that the other side is doing wrong and you have to explain what you'll do to make things better. On borders, for instance, why couldn't the Liberals have said that they were kept closed for far too long and taken up the countless cases of families separated and businesses harmed playing to WA's keen sense of pride 
in being the nation's economic powerhouse. On lockdowns, for instance, why couldn't the Liberals have said that virtually imprisoning two million people on the basis of just one COVID case, as we saw a couple of weeks back, was an absurd overreaction from Premier, who's playing the politics for all it's worth so that voters don't look too closely at his record before the pandemic. On expert health advice, why couldn't the Liberals have said it should always be taken seriously, but it should never be mindlessly deferred to? And where it's as important to make a decision on the basis of health grounds, we've got to weigh it up against everything else. Mental health costs, people's jobs, the economy. Now, I'm not saying that elections can always be won, especially against first-term governments that still have a degree of goodwill. But elections always have to be fought. I've never seen a leader throw up the white flag as early as Kirkup, and frankly, I couldn't vote for him on this basis alone because politics is no place for a quitter. The problem here is that Zach Kirkup doesn't seem to be in lockstep with Liberal policy or values. I don't think I'm the only one with that view. Look at how carefully the PM himself is avoiding a trip to the West to campaign alongside Kirkup. And there's plenty of worried conversations in Canberra already. Let me tell you about what Kirkup's likely loss will mean for the Morrison government federally. Fundamentally, political parties define themselves by what they're for and what they're against. When the differences between you and your opponent are sharpened, when voters are given a clear choice. But when that all comes confused, parties and leaders lose their point. For the record, I doubt that the West Australian Libs will suffer quite the wipeout that's currently predicted in the polls. Voters don't normally want their parliaments too one-sided. But that said, the result won't be pretty. I think the best that can be said of Zach Kirkup at this stage is that he's certainly providing Liberal oppositions everywhere with an abject lesson in what not to do. He's got two weeks, does he need to turn this left-leaning Liberal ship around? The big question is, can he and will he? All right, let's head to Canberra now for tonight's political headlines. The Prime Minister insists Australia's vaccine rollout remains on track as concerns are raised about delays in aged care homes. The government pledged that around 240 aged care facilities would get the vaccine in the first week of the rollout. So far, only 90 have. We're in day four of a nine-month program and each day as that rolls out, um, it'll continue to improve. We said it'd start slow and it would get to a pace and a scale and that's exactly where we're heading. Meanwhile, the Aged Care Royal Commission's final report has been handed to the Governor-General ahead of its public release next week. This Royal Commission, I think, will identify serious, serious and disturbing issues that are a product of decades. Decades. And it's important that I think the Government is then supported by the Parliament right across all parties and we get on with the things that we need to do to address the recommendations. We know that the interim report was titled Neglect because that's what the system is in, one of neglect. A fresh brawl has erupted as Queensland refuses to pay New South Wales back for the cost of hotel quarantine. Deputy Premier Stephen Miles taking to social media to rip up the $30 million invoice. It was sent to the state to pay for the Queensland residents who've quarantined in Sydney. I appreciate they might do that for some cheap political shots. All I say to other states is, look, everybody has their day in the sun, sending pot shots to other premiers and whatever else. But we're talking about human beings working their guts out to keep all of us safe. And we appreciate other states aren't doing their bit in that regard. So just pay us what you owe us. That's all we're saying. As for the other states... If Victoria owes New South Wales $30-odd million for processing essentially Victorians... In New South Wales hotel quarantine, then Daniel Andrews should pay that bill. It's not Gladys and I, it's the two treasurers who are working together on that, and I'm confident that that matter will get progressed. And restrictions will be eased from midnight in Victoria as the state records two new COVID cases. 
Mask rules will be eased and gathering limits increased. That's a testament to the fact that Victorians have proven as stubborn as this virus. The relaxation proceeding despite two new cases linked to the Holiday Inn cluster. They have been actually in hotel ISO because of their household circumstances, uh, so they pose no risk to public health more broadly. Trudy McIntosh, Sky News, Canberra. Right, for more on these new virus cases in Victoria, I'm joined now by Sky News Melbourne reporter Gabriella Power. Not great news today for Victoria, but fortunately, Gab, the Premier didn't use it to, as a reason to hold back easing restrictions today. What can you tell us first about these two new cases? Peter, the two people who contracted COVID-19 are primary close contacts of existing cases. They are, of course, connected to the Holiday Inn cluster. That outbreak now stands at 24 infections. Those two people were already self-isolating. They had chosen to do so in a hotel, and that was so they wouldn't infect other members of their families. And uh, they tested positive on day 11 of their isolation. Now, the good news is, because they were in quarantine, there are no additional exposure sites added to the DHHS website. Now, the Premier and uh, health authorities had warned Victorians that there may be a few more cases popping up as 3,500 people were forced to quarantine as a result of the holiday in outbreak. But Professor Brett Sutton today said that he's confident that there won't be any more cases. But Peter, as you know, this outbreak prompted the Andrews government to stop all international arrivals. There's still no word on when they'll re return. Right, let's look at these restrictions. Life is starting to get back to normal, you know, including the footy, we're told, by the Premier today. What's some of the detail there, Gab? Finally, some good news for footy fans here in Melbourne. As you know, there's a lot of them. Crowds will be capped at 50% capacity. So this means that 50,000 people will be able to attend the season opener at the MCG and Marvel Stadium will be able to have 28,000 people. In terms of other restrictions easing back, we are going back to the COVID normal summer, what we experienced over Christmas time before the Black Rock outbreak. So outdoor gatherings have lifted from 20 people to 100. Home visits have gone up from 5 to 30. The rules around masks have relaxed, so they're only required in high-risk settings, such as in Ubers, on public transport and in supermarkets. These changes all come into effect at midnight tonight. And uh, good news on Monday, finally, 75% of people will be able to return to the office space in the CBT. That is the first time since the pandemic began. Now, earlier today, it wasn't clear if the Anzac Day march would be going ahead, but in news just in, it appears as though the state government has reached an agreement with RSL Victoria and the march will be able to go ahead. RSL Victoria has released a statement saying that uh, talks were held today and after listening to the feedback from Victorians, it appears as though the march can go ahead in a COVID safe way. Well, that is fantastic news. And uh, I know my viewers were really heartened to hear all the veterans we had on and a terrific war widow last night asking for some common sense. I think perhaps Noelle Pratt's tough words to the Premier last night might have cut through. Gab, thanks for your time. All right, as you know, here on Credlin, I get to the end of the week and I'm always a bit keen to hear from you all the issues that have run around, what's cut through with you at home? What's the big issues that matter to you most after all the headlines and this week, of course, all the parliamentary goings on? So on feed Feedback Friday on Facebook today, I put something up and I asked you, should Australia move to use emissions-free baseload power, nuclear power? Now, here's some of your responses. Eloise Campbell, well, she says, yes, no doubt, Australia is ideally placed having abundant uranium and no significant seismic activity. Michael Sturpin says, absolutely, nuclear is the cleanest and one of the safest sources of energy generation. Jan Peters says, let's hear the facts on nuclear power as an option. Leave the ideology behind and let's understand what the realities of this would be. And Nick Wayne says, a big no, the cost far outweighs the benefit. You can't guarantee safe nuclear energy in such large quantities. Discuss this and more. I'm joined, as always, on a Friday by Gold, from, actually from the Gold Coast, not from Sydney tonight, 2GB radio host, the voice of the people here on Credlin, Mr Luke Grant. <laughs> now, your, Hello, your beachside, Peter. Love mate. You. How lucky are you? Oh, how lucky are you? How I lucky, am, I love how lucky am I? I know. It's a fantastic place to be. Could I just say quickly, well done you. That Anzac Day March cancellation in Melbourne was absolutely ridiculous. 
Good on you for the coverage this week. It's been terrific. And if there's been a breakthrough, oh, thanks, whether mate. it be your work or someone else's, that is just common sense. Well done. I think Victorians are finding their voice, I have to say. I think, uh, I think they're you're browbeaten right. yeah. by their Premier and I think they're not going to take yeah. it. I think that's in part today, even with these two yeah. cases. I don't think he dared to knock back the restriction easing that he promised yesterday. And as I said, I had a particular yeah. war widow one last night and uh, she didn't mince her words. Right, she didn't mince her words. So let's hope that's you know she is the reason it's from all my listeners, For my listeners, the last lockdown was for many the breaking point, Peter. I think it, I think I think you're right. I think that's true. I think we crossed mm. a line there. Um, I want to go to yeah. this issue of nuclear power because I, I feel <laughs> yes. that it's shifted. Um, it's shifted because this whole debate emissions power and, and not just removing coal from our energy mix, but now the debate with the Greens to remove gas and some in Labor want gas to go. So if we're going to be serious, mm. we're going to, going to make things still in this country, we're going to have manufacturing jobs, people understand we need base load power. And, and what you can see in that view, I don't know what one person there doesn't want it. Others want more information, but they are engaged, right? That I, I can't yes. understand why the politicians don't take the public into their confidence and allow us to yeah. have a debate. I mean, we'd have a debate about same-sex marriage, but somehow we're yes. not allowed to have a debate about nuclear power. <laughs> what are you hearing uh, on Talkback, Luke? Well, now, coincidentally, last weekend, I had uh, a guest who was part of the Australia for Nuclear Climate Group. Now, they're not a bunch of greenies. They're serious about advocating for nuclear as a real option. And the point has to be made that it's essentially a protection racket. You can't even talk about nuclear and then you get the mother of all scare campaigns thrown at anything you say. And, and people often, Peter, refer back to uh, Fukushima in Japan, thinking, oh, look, all those people died. That was the tsunami. 19,000 souls lost their lives and we shouldn't forget that. But from the nuclear accident, there wasn't, from what I've been able to research over the last day, and according to this group last week, not one death uh, due to uh, nuclear wastage, nuclear leaks. Mm. So people just have to be told the truth. But we haven't been able to have the conversation, as you know. Uh, any politician who puts this forward up until just recently gets uh, shouted down, of course, then his or her seat's going to be home for this uh, massive nuclear plant. But it's, we've moved on. Those plants that existed at Fukushima and elsewhere, they aren't the same now. They're modular plants. They're, they're built by GE in America. They take seven or eight years to commission. They're doing one right now in Canada that'll be operating in 27 or 28 years, uh, in, in seven or eight years, and it's enough to power a suburb or two. You're not going to build one so big that it powers a whole country. But we need an informed debate, mm. Peter. We don't need to revisit history based on a, you know, a, a Netflix program like Chernobyl or something. Th things have changed. And there are countries, as you know, like France, Canada, all around the world that are relying on clean... And if the point is zero emissions, hello, and we've got all this uranium here which would have to be enriched, it's just a no-brainer. We've got to have the debate. We've got to have the debate, and I think Australians are hungry for these sorts of mature uh, debates we about are. where the country is at the next decade. Uh, of course, you need three things for nuclear power. You, you need geologically stable land. That's what you don't have in Japan. We have it here. And that's the point about yes. you know, very low seismic activity. You need plenty of space. Yeah. Well, we've got plenty of that. Uh, and you need water. Now, you can scale up in yeah. a, a, you know, a local or domestic nuclear capability, scientists and things like that. People say that will take many, many years. We did it with Lucas Heights. We did it in, in a number of years, yeah. under 10 yeah. years, and we built a facility. Yeah. It's not beyond us, right? It's not beyond no. us. And I think this is, where, no. this is where people are crying out for a bit of leadership. Like Australians and are crying out for leadership. And these modular plants... You're right, you're right. These modular plants, mm. they call themselves for a week. So in the event mm. of something going awry, they've got a week to go in there and do something. So it's mm. very different right. to, oh, my God. We're, we're you know, having quite a... It's different. We're having quite a lot of debate still on uh, renewable energy. We saw circumstances uh, in Texas, a bit of a, yeah. uh, a couple of weeks of chaos over there. Infrastructure Australia yeah. out there today saying there has to be a massive expansion of renewable energy in this country. Now, we're world leaders on renewable energy. I am not mm. convinced we need more of it. We need more baseload, not so much renewable. And it all comes at a time the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, 
This is the, the Bob Brown Green Bank, I call it. It was part of the deal with Gillard to stay in power. Well, yes. They've put $160 yeah. million of our money, handed it across to a French company to build one of the world's largest batteries, lithium-ion batteries near Geelong. Now, if renewables are so good, right, if they stack up, yeah. why on earth do they need only $200 million of our money to get them going? And at the same time as we're putting you know, $160 million into renewables, into a battery power for Geelong. Mm. I'll made over there in China, Xi Jinping, 227 new coal-fired power stations, building them at the yeah. same time as we're building a battery. Yeah. Goodness me, Luke. Uh, we're, we're a joke. I mean, we, we are a dead-set joke. Imagine that. Now, if we wind this conversation back two minutes, so if we want to produce energy, we don't want to have emissions... And we want to be our habit there, even when there's no sun or wind. What are we going to do? One of the fascinating things, Peter, that I've, I've learned today is that when they look at new energy uh, investment, they don't take into account, you'll love this, the degree to which it's there all the time. So long as it can be produced at some point, it's open for investment. So the idea that, oh, hang on, what about at night when it might be dark and, and still? That doesn't, that's not a consideration. Mm. So no, no wonder there's not the investment in, again, nuclear, etc. because the parameters are ridiculous. And they've really got to look at that. Uh, I, I think this, uh, over all the years that we've spent money, and you're right, we lead the world in renewable investment, what have we got for it? Pick up your power bill and ask yourself the question, what have you got for it? My listeners are sick of it. They hear, oh, renewables, that'll fix things. We've heard that for too long. It hasn't fixed things. Mm. It costs too much to operate a home, a household, let alone a business and employ people. We're dead set a joke in this area. It's reliability and it's price incredibly important. And, of course, if we had Correct. nuclear power in this country, we'd, we'd get some nuclear subs, which I think are just as important yeah. from a strategic yeah. basis. I want to go to the, the mm. Facebook issue because I know you're at the coalface there on Radio 2GB. Yes. I know you rely on Facebook to get your messages out. I do. The government's had a, had a big win. Josh Frydenberg's had a big win. It's interesting that it's been sold as a big win here. Different views overseas. I think Facebook is talking its book <laughs> a bit. But I read something from yeah. Lord Rothermere. He's the owner of the Daily Mail in the UK. He's accused yes. the Morrison government of giving in to blackmail, he says, by Facebook. Um, yeah. He says yeah. they've rolled over. He wrote a letter in the UK Financial Times and he says a nation was held to ransom and it surrendered. Facebook has won the battle. It will decide what news is read on social media and how much, if anything, it pays for it. Now, <laughs> we don't know a lot of the detail in this Frydenberg-Zuckerberg no. deal. It's not out there yet. Yeah. But if Facebook can decide what publishers appear in the news feed, then if they can do that... To me, that's akin to censorship. And again, it gives Facebook the upper hand with any negotiation they have with media players. What do you know about the actual detail of this deal? Well, I'd like you, not very much, other than to say at least there's a deal. What a privileged position to be over there in the UK owning a newspaper and potting Josh Frydenberg et al. It's like waiting for the wounded to come home after the war and you'll give them a gobful. What a joke. At least we had a crack. Now, I want this bloke to look at The Guardian and see how many favourable mentions Craig Kelly gets. Because I'm here to tell you, editorial is what this space is all about. Uh, we know mm. it. Some newspapers have a slant one way, some the other. Some radio broadcasters, I put my hand up in the air every time I start the show and say, look, I'm a conservative. This is what you're going to get. Um, of course, people will choose what they do and don't publish. Mind you, if Facebook do something particularly nasty to government in order to force policy, that's a completely different matter. But I don't think we should. I think we've got a deal. Let's see what happens with the deal. No one else in the world has got a deal. Little old Australia's no. got a deal. Go Australia. Let's see what happens. If things aren't right next year, then, you know, Josh will get uh, Mr Zuckerberg back around the table and hopefully get, get a new deal. But I think it's a bit rich for this bloke in England to be potting Josh Frydenberg and Scott Morrison. Give me a break. At least we did something. All right. Well, we'll see what happens. We'll see when we get the detail. We will. As always, LeGrant, thank you. Enjoy your time in the Goldie, and I'll see you next week. I'll have a little drink with an umbrella for you.
Stop it. Come on, off you go. I've got another good 45 <laughs> minutes still here at the desk. All right, quick break. After the break, we're getting it across the detail of Melissa Caddick's remains being found today, but also the background to the business she ran, the investment business, because that's the real story. After the break. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. You're watching Credlin. I've just had a minister inform me that uh, these new modular nuclear reactors are not so reliant on water resources as the old ones uh, traditionally are. So there you go. They've learnt something, passed it through straight to you. All right, let's move on to this issue of Melissa Caddick. Three months ago, after she fled her home in Sydney's eastern suburbs, the remains of the missing woman, alleged con woman, have been found today on the New South Wales south coast. The unlicensed financial advisor allegedly operated an elaborate Ponzi scheme which saw around 60 clients duped for an estimated $25 million. Joining me now from Sydney is a man who broke the story of this morning's fairly gruesome discovery, crime editor at the Daily Telegraph, Mark Morrie. Mark, thanks for coming on the show. Pretty extraordinary story. Talk us through what happened today and then I want to get into, uh, you know, all the detail about the Ponzi scheme because I think that's very, very extraordinary. What do we know happened today? What did the police tell us? Well, the, the police today uh, informed the, the media and everybody in, in New South Wales that Melissa, who had been missing since November, that uh, a foot uh, had been found last Sunday at a beach on the south coast. And last night they got the DNA results, which matched it to Melissa Caddick. So they were able to positively say that she was now deceased. Um, so they still don't know how she died, but they're pretty confident that it, it appears to have been a suicide. I listened to to the um, police today and they were talking about it's pretty extraordinary, you know, tidal work they had done. If, if someone had got into the water up around where she was living on the Sydney suburbs, where those, you know, where the body might trail, if I can say that, or where the remains might end up. And they weren't far wrong, you know, within a couple of kilometres. I thought that was, um, I thought that was pretty amazing to get that sort of work done. And they were right. Yeah, extraordinary to think that the body's travelled over 180 nautical kilometres, I believe, uh, mm. which is quite, you know, quite a distance. And there was all the speculation was, you know, they should have found the body by now. And that's what fuelled the story. And as you said, she was just a missing person for about a week. And then it just started to unravel uh, about what she'd been up to for a number of years, which, which made the story incredibly extraordinary. So let's talk about that, because... I find this whole Ponzi scheme um, that went on for many, many years. It wasn't a short-term scheme. It went on for many years. It involved 60-odd um, people, people known to her allegedly. I'll have to say allegedly because none of this has yet gone through the courts. But we're talking about $25 million. And she lived a luxury life. You know, Aspen That's... Ski Lodge, all of the, you know, the clothes that we saw there and the you know, luxury vehicles, etc. How did she get away with it for so long? She was obviously very, very, very clever. Um, and she relied on the fact that nearly a lot of the victims, uh, alleged victims, as you said, but a lot of the victims were very, very close friends and even family. So they trusted her and she had a very elaborate scheme set up, uh, fake documentation that looked incredibly authentic. Um, and if people did ask for some funds, she, she would give them the funds so as not to, to set off alarm bells. So she's very, very clever and she, you know, just kept rolling this money through. And as you said, she was just spending it on an extraordinary lifestyle, like a quarter of a million dollar necklace. Um, lavish. Mm. The, the other thing she did is she put people at ease by having these very, very uh, lavish luncheons at her place that were catered for. So they thought, gee, she's doing well. Um, and again, she, she would show them uh, massive amounts of documentation of what their portfolio was supposedly doing and earning. Um, and she also charged service fees and everything. So it didn't seem like they were getting something for nothing. And that, again, helped mm. with the authenticity of it all. 
Yeah, and I think the point you make there about the, the front, you know, the expensive jewellery, uh, the, the, the events at her home, the, the beautiful property, all of that fuels this sense that they are doing well and your money's safe. 29 bank accounts, we're told. Um, it all sort of came to a head, obviously, when ASIC knocked on her door. Should that have happened earlier? I mean, are people at home in these sorts of arrangements, not Ponzi schemes, but dealing with financial advisors, should they have confidence that the system is there and properly regulated if this went on for so long? Well, I think it really it's, it shows you've got to be so aware. You've got to be very, very careful. You've got to double-check everything. She was operating without a licence. And it really only mm. came to light when one woman got a little bit suspicious and, and then the ball started rolling. Yeah, I think I can see what you're saying, that, you know, there are so many people now putting their money in superannuation in these funds. But I just think you have to be extra digital. Uh, diligent, and you'd hope that our financial regulators are, are maybe um, looking into a lot more of these people. Yeah, well, Mark Murray, I'm sure the story's not going to go away. Um, <laughs> it will go through a legal process on many fronts from here on in. But you broke the story. Thanks for coming on the show tonight. Thank you. And I must say, on a human note, she's got a young son, a 15 year old son, who tonight is dealing with his mother's loss. So, as much as it is a a story about people being allegedly ripped off. Um, I feel for him tonight. All right, that was Mark Murray, crime editor at The Daily Telegraph. Lifelines there for those 13, 11, 14, who themselves are feeling things are tough. All right, let's go into another issue. You've heard me talk about this many times, to have a reasonable and um, considered debate about the place of women with all of these gender law changes. A Melbourne academic has started a website calling out transgender people for using women-only spaces. Because of that, she's been savaged by her colleagues as transphobic. Dr Holly Lawford-Smith is a senior lecturer in political philosophy at the University of Melbourne. And she established no conflict, they said, a webpage calling women to share stories about how their use of places like changing rooms, bathrooms, domestic violence refuges have been impacted by laws replacing sex with gender identity. Because of that, as I said, she's been handed, hounded by fellow academics who say in an open letter to her bosses that Dr Lawford-Smith's website casks transgender people, they say, as predatory. Dr Holly Lawford-Smith joins me now from Melbourne. Thank you for coming on the show, um, Holly. Thank you. It's really important, I think, that we talk about these issues. What was the genesis behind your website? Why did you set it up? What's the function of it? And, and you know, give me a sense of what sort of information is being collected. Yeah, so um, the name of the website, No Conflict, they said, refers to the fact that activists for gender identity tend to just insist that there's absolutely no conflict between women's rights or women's interests and the interests of people with gender identities. Um, and I think, and many gender critical feminists think there is such a conflict of interests. And one problem is that even though all these laws are being introduced in countries around the world, uh, there, there's no collection of data about how women may be being uh, impacted by having increasing numbers of men using women-only spaces and services. So I just wanted to invite women to submit stories to explain if and how they're being impacted in their use of these spaces. Can you imagine, cast your mind back 20 years, if something like this was happening, if women's spaces, which had long been argued for and finally started to appear when I was at uni uh, in the late 90s or mid-90s, um, if they were then being removed, there would have been a debate about collecting data. The fact that you've asked for data to inform whether this is a good move and what's the ramifications of erasing sex. Um, the fact that you're asking for data that's the problem. Now, I, I think in an academic sense, that's a real worry that we don't want empirical data, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's a real worry. Um, and I think this is all just ideological. So people are assuming that if any man is willing to claim that he has a gender identity, so he feels uh, feminine or woman identified, then he should just be an exception uh, for any way that we might normally think about men. So we have women-only spaces and services where any feminist, um, even the ones who are writing open letters against me, would think that it's completely reasonable to exclude men from those spaces. They just want to make an exception that I don't want to make. They want to make an exception for any man willing to claim a feminine identity. 
uh, and, and then it's seen as transphobic to, to ask any questions about those men in particular. So that's where the, um, the sort of heart of Yeah, but just let me jump in on that. P people outside of Victoria may not realise, Holly, that there's just, there's, I was going to say, there's a low bar at, to, to, mm -hmm. to claim a feminine identity um, as a physical yep. male in, yep. in Victoria, but there is no bar. I mean, there's nothing to stop a physical male waking up tomorrow and declaring that they're female in, in the state of Victoria. They can change their um, birth certificate. They can have a, a driver's licence and a new feminine name. It requires uh, no medical assessment or anything. It's just it's exactly. just a decision they make. And, yep. and then by the afternoon, they could walk into a domestic violence shelter. Exactly. So we were having this exact same debate two years ago when Victoria actually moved to change the law to make the legal category of sex a matter of self-declared um, identity. So you just say you believe that your sex is such and so, and then you pay a nominal fee and that's it. And that's to have the legal recognition. To have the social recognition, it's just your say-so. So we really are talking about making all women-only spaces and services de facto mixed sex. They're not fully mixed sex, but they're partly mixed sex. And I think that's going to have implications. Um, and I want to know what those implications are. I think that has to be part of the conversation. I think absolutely right. But where are the feminists on this? I know. <laughs> it's really depressing. Um, it's, I mean, um, honestly, I, mean, I went to Melbourne Uni and Sheila Jeffries, Dr Sheila Jeffries, who was sexual politics and all manner of things, you would probably know her, she's a very strident feminist. I know that yeah. she has spoken out on, on basically women being erased in this yeah. whole transgender de debate and she has been pilloried for it. You've been yes. pilloried for it. I mean, women have fought for a long time to have some level of equality. Where are they? We're being erased in this transgender debate, aren't we? Yeah, I know. I, I really think there's been this move in the last sort of 30 years of the scholarship. When you read through the, the sort of feminist philosophy, for example, it's like the move to be kind and inclusive has just replaced all the other theoretical considerations. So the what it means to be a woman now is just kind of like primarily the desideratum is to be inclusive. And of course, if you don't have a strong sense of what the constituency of feminine, fe feminism is, you can't stand for women. So that's where the feminists are. They're out there trying to be maximally inclusive and now making feminism this thing that's really about not hurting men's feelings rather than actually protecting women in a, in a rape shelter. I mean, it's absolutely baffling. So I've got to ask you about this story in the UK. I covered it this week. It's legislation before the British Parliament. It was a bill to put in place maternity leave provisions for primarily MPs and ministers, but they took yeah. out the term mothers and they used the term pregnant people. Now, there's been a big brouhaha and uh, the British Tory party has uh, backed down, the government has backed down. This, this yeah. goes to the point of language. You know, we've, we've had this idea of breastfeeding now being replaced with chest feeding, not just overseas, here in Australia. If we yeah. have to have terms like pregnant person rather than mother, what, what, where are ordinary people having some say in this, Holly? Where, where is the community having a say? Because they don't want it. I agree they don't want it. Yeah, it, it, it's again, it's just this move to be really, really kind and really, really inclusive, right? So it's coming from people that think of themselves as progressive, wanting to be maximally accommodating of people who claim to have gender identities. And they just don't see, especially in the feminist case, how much this is eroding the amazing historical hard work of feminists. So we had a kind of default male and we fought for women-centred language and being able to name our specific biology and experiences. And now all of that mm -hmm. work is being undermined by women in the name of feminism. Um, I know, but you, you, do, you don't deal with the issue of, of, of rights for the transgender by diminishing rights for the women. I mean, that's absolutely the point, right? I'm yep. not asking or saying or any sense out there that there's any way you diminish transgender people, but you don't elevate the issue of transgender by diminishing women. That's the problem I have with all of this. Well, that's the thing. That's why there's an assumption that there's no conflict, but there is a conflict, and we have to be able to talk about how to make the exact trade-offs between the two groups to get a solution that's good for everyone, and the activists are not allowing that. They're just saying whatever their agenda is, that's the thing we have to go with, and we shouldn't be talking about impacts on women. It's, yeah. All right, well, 
Dr. Holly Lawford-Smith, you are a very welcome guest on here any time you want to speak on these issues. I think people are sensitive to them, um, but they absolutely don't want to go back in terms of where women were 100 plus years ago. So thank you for your time. Thank you. Stick at it, gosh, brave woman. Melbourne University to have those views. Goodness me. All right, after the break, Australia's top spy agency has warned about extremist groups taking advantage of COVID-related border closures. More on that shortly. News doesn't have to be boring. The Brits have given Prince Harry a new nickname after yet another tell-all interview. Oh, God, is it the ginger winger? <laughs> <laughs> Let the team at news.com.au get you up to speed each day with their podcast from the newsroom. A couple were busted joining the Mile High Club. Well, I guess they can't fly virgin anymore. <laughs> Politics, sport, red carpets, royals. Get all the goss in just a few minutes. Follow from the newsroom wherever you get your podcast from got more in there now about Anzac Day in Melbourne. As Gabriella Power said at the top of the show, there's been an extraordinary backflip from RSL Victoria and it would seem the Andrews government. Melbourne's Anzac Day parade is now going ahead. In a news statement, RSL Victoria said after hearing public sentiment and feedback, RSL Victoria has renewed its commitment to holding an Anzac Day march in Melbourne that will be close to normal as possible. Seems they listened to my guest last night, Noelle Pratt. Well, get your act into gear and please bring the service back. It doesn't have to be as large as it has been in the previous years, but you cannot um, allow these men that gave so much to be, to be forgotten. Get your act together. Isn't she fantastic? All right, you heard me at the top of the show about Zach Kirkup. Well, after conceding he cannot win the state election in mid-March, he failed to land a blow on the Premier Mark McGowan in last night's leaders' debate in the West. This very novice opposition leader was forced to defend his pre-election surrender, claiming instead he was taking a dignified approach. Goodness me. To discuss this and more, I'm joined now by my Friday panel from Sydney, host of Outsiders here on Sky News, Rowan Dean, Another one up on the Gold Coast. Goodness me, social commentator, the one and only Prue McSween. Rowan, We're not having an affair. <laughs> <laughs> Just probably good mates having a glass of wine. All right, Zach yeah. Kirkup, Rowan, I tell you what, I mean, I've never seen someone fold. Uh, he's going to cause enormous damage to, to the supporter base, I believe, in Western Australia. I think he'll cause some problems for the Prime Minister too. Oh, surely, to goodness, this bloke should... Uh, I don't know what, I don't want him to go because then there'll be no one there in two weeks' time when he faces the polls, but it's extraordinary, gutless. Well, um, Peter, I'm not often drawn to uh, desire to quote from Osama bin Laden, but uh, it was Osama bin Laden who, I think I'm correct in saying, uh, frequently cited the old uh, maxim that uh, people like to follow the strong horse, they like to follow the strong leader. And uh, clearly this bloke, Kirkup, uh, is not only a weak leader, but a doomed leader. Uh, why on earth would you go... You've got three weeks till the election. Any leader worth their salt would be rushing around, uh, fighting the good fight to win every single last vote and convincing people that they were capable of being the leader. Because it's only... Uh, he came out and he said something about, this is not my time. Well, I'm afraid it will never be his time. Because if you're not prepared to fight like a winner now then you'll never be taken seriously as a winner and you'll always be that bloke who made such a, a goose of himself by declaring he'd lost the election before it even began. But let me tell you, Peter, this is such a betrayal of every uh, Liberal uh, voter who's, uh, who's ever uh, put their faith in the Liberal Party for conservative values. Mm. Uh, to run up the white flag like that, what a joke. I'm with you, Rowan, and you don't send a boy to do a man's job, as my father would say. I mean... I think it's embarrassing. He's been in the parliament two minutes. I think there's a lot of talk he won't even hold uh, his seat. And he, he disenfranchises all those Liberals who want to see him go to the wire. Prove. I remember when I worked for Tony Abbott in opposition up against uh, Julia Gillard at that time in the 2010 election, and Abbott was behind mm -hmm. going into that last week, and he just went at it and at it and at it. We had uh, 24 hours of campaigning right through the night absolutely down to the wire for every last vote. And this bloke, 
is already declaring he's unelectable. It's unbelievable. I mean, you've got to show that you're a fighter, that you have the passion to want it. And it's it's fascinating, isn't it? It's, I don't know if it's the generation that he represents where, oh, well, if it's all too hard, I just throw in the towel. It almost seems to be like that. It's going to be very fascinating, though, because all the people who are die-hard Liberal voters, will they go to the Nationals? You know, it's not a coalition. Will we find that the Nationals will actually, by default, fault, you know, get the votes. But, you know, obviously McGowan's going to romp it in. But what are the mm. implications for the Feds, you know, with the Liberals really, I think, you know, being tainted so badly by the performance in, in, the, in WA and, you know, what it's going to do for Morrison. Will Morrison step in? He can't really save it, but he may be able to at least, you know, win some of the votes so it doesn't look like a total demolition. I think I might have said at the top of the, the show, Rowan, that Malcolm Turnbull said, what does it matter? You know, the Conservative vote has nowhere to go. I don't think it was Malcolm Turnbull, but it was certainly used... <laughs> I, think it was, it was uh, used... I think it was Texter Crosby, or Crosby Texter back That's in the right. Day. It was Mark used Texter. in the Turnbull government era yes. when they went to that poll in 2016 and they lost... Malcolm Turnbull lost 14 seats. That's the problem. This idea that they can just... Uh, that the Conservative vote is expendable, that it won't go and park mm. itself anywhere else. We saw it in Queensland. It did. I mean, a lot of Conservatives voted for Anastasia Palaszczuk. A lot of Conservatives will move to One Nation. That's the problem, the contempt, Rowan, isn't it, that Conservative voters are being treated with? Yeah, exactly. And you have to, uh, you know, for people to put their faith in you as a political leader... You've got to be able to show that you can do it, as you were mentioning Tony Abbott did, uh, during the tough times, uh, during when it looks like all is lost, that you fight on, that you're going to fight regardless, that you see, you believe in your convictions to such an extent that you're always going to be a winner. You have to have that if you're a leader. And even in the darkest hours, people will go, yeah, but at least he fought. And then often an election is a trial run for the next election. And uh, people mm -hmm. go, yeah, but he really fought back then, so he really must believe this stuff. And now, a few years later, McGowan's on the nose. Well, uh, he's our man, and, you know, he'll be sitting there. But not now, not after this nonsense. And I think you're right. I think One Nation, I think and the Nationals uh, should hopefully be picking up a lot of seats out of this. And if I were a Liberal voter, I'd be sending a very clear message to the Libs and WA. Sorry, you just lost me. We had a debate about all these border closures, um, Prue, all the way through much of last year. And, it, you know, opening up the borders is, is how we get our economy going and hopefully a bit of overseas travel and all the things that come with that. But uh, the judgment yeah. in relation to Clive Palmer's loss in the High Court separated into four separate judgments. Uh, Chief Justice Susan Kiefel and Pat Keane ruled that there was no effective alternative to a general restriction on entry, so they supported the Premier. Um, you know, even though in Section 92 there's supposed to be a free trade movement amongst the states, clearly that's not the case. What did you make of the release of the ruling today? Well, you know, I think the average punter who is not familiar with legalese would say, well, you know, the Constitution is stuffed. It's not working for us. So, you know, we have this situation where it's all sort of hanging now on these two new judges and whether they will enter into the, the intention and spirit of what Parks had when under the sec uh, Section 92 where there was free intercourse, free trade. And, you know, all we can see is that we've got a bunch of politicians who are more interested in, you know, winning votes for themselves and looking a hero. They're really not worried about whether it's good for the country. And I think this mm. is where it's so sad. And, uh, you know, let's hope that these two judges, you know, realise or interpret it a little bit towards you know, the spirit of what Parks, I think, really meant. I think you're absolutely right. And I hope people are Googling Parks if they don't know exactly uh, the history there. I think the history is illuminating, particularly in the last couple mm. of years, on the issue of states' rights and states' powers. Rowan, what about this high school, uh, Redcliffe High School in Queensland? They're, they're trialling the use of these pronoun badges... Students have the option to wear a badge that says he, him, that's my preferred pronouns, or she, her, or they, them. For people in the local area, they think it's crazy. Well, they're right. It is completely crazy. It's not only crazy. Uh, it, it's crazy for a number of reasons. But it's also so, uh, you know, can't these teachers just teach, you know, maths? Have they heard of maths, the English language of which these pronouns 
do actually have a role and a position, uh, literature, history. There's so much that they could be teaching. And they're wandering around with mm. this rubbish, and it is rubbish. And uh, it is indulging. Not only is it not teaching the kids things, it is actually indulging this narcissism uh, that we are teaching kids. It's all about me and my feelings, and that's all that matters, and how I'm perceived in the world. It's revolting. All right. Well, I heard you. Yeah. Got to go. Rowan but Dean, I mean, Prumix Wayne, you enjoy the Gold Coast Prue. Run Luke, out of time, will, I'm sorry. Thank but, you. Uh, you better get that cocktail. Luke Grant's promising there was I'm an umbrella to. on the top. So <laughs> there you go. All right. Thanks, see you next week. See you, Peter. See you, Prue. All right. Still to come after the break, my final thought. Don't go anywhere. My name is Manny Karoudis, and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts. Before we go, there's been plenty of talk this week about former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd following his appearance last week at the Senate committee, including that beard. Here was Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton's slightly mischievous take on Rudd's appearance. One of my favourite uh, movies... Ray is, uh, is Anchorman, and I mean, he, he reminds me a bit of Ron Burgundy. I don't know if you've watched it, but Ron's sort of at the top of his game, and it all goes very bad, and he turns into sort of this homeless man and uh, looks dishevelled, uh, tries to get back on air and all the rest of it. And he's got this sort of, you know, hostage look to him as well, I've got to no, say, he, where yeah, yeah, he's been fed well in, in captivity, but they haven't allowed him to shave, and I think that's always a worrying sign as well. I don't under I didn't understand a one word you said. Ron, are you okay? Ron. <laughs> Ron, <laughs> where are you? Hi, it's Gary Jubilant here. Do you want a real and raw look inside the world of crime? Well then check out my podcast, I Catch Killers, where I interview people from all sides of the law. I draw my firearm and I went into fight mode. I wanted to find and confront this gunman. I'm not getting verbal, am I? <laughs> I shouldn't have trusted you. See, I'm, I'm trying to open my mind up to uh, defence I know, it's just begging to be said. Yeah. Fair call, fair call. We have amazing guests every week. Search for I Catch Killers wherever you get your podcasts.